0: Wisdom and compassion are the two great perfections of the Buddha. and The compassion was the very great loving care he felt for beings. It actually was the motivation for those countless lifetimes of practice needed to attain Buddhahood, to bring all the perfections to completion. And all of that effort over lifetimes culminated in the wisdom of his enlightenment. When he understood deeply and completely the causes of suffering and also the range of skillful means to alleviate it, to come to the end of suffering. Understanding the possibility for happiness, for freedom. He then spent 45 years teaching, he was enlightened at age 35 and he died at age 80, so he spent 45 years teaching people and urging them and exhorting them and admonishing and sometimes even tricking people. <laughs> you know, it's like any skillful means that is at hand to help awaken people to the possibility of liberation. I'll just tell two short, skillful, mean stories which are quite opposite and shows, perhaps, a little bit of the range. There was one monk who was actually his cousin, his name was Nanda, uh, who was practicing as a monk in the forest, but he was always thinking about uh, his old girlfriend, (laughs) who he had left behind so he'd be doing in, out, in, out lost in the fantasies we're all familiar with so finally the Buddha came to know of this you know, and he took this he took Nanda aside you know, and through his great psychic power he initiated or brought about a vision in Nanda of the heaven realms you know, and so Nanda came to see these heavenly realms and all of these beautiful beings Beautiful women and men and bodies of light, luminous, radiant, you know, whatever they look like. And the Buddha asked Nanda, well, who's more beautiful, your old girlfriend or these heavenly beings? And the, oh, these heavenly beings, much more beautiful. So the Buddha said, Well, I promise you five hundred of them if you do your practice. <laughs> he practiced <laughs> there was a strong motivation <laughs> of course after some time the other monks came to know that that's why he was practicing and they made fun of him and so he really got it together he practiced hard he became enlightened you know, and so he forgave the Buddha his promise so there was one little trick the Buddha used with another, with another monk his name was Chana Chana was the person who was the Bodhisattva's charioteer before Siddhartha Gautama while he was still a prince he was the charioteer and when he left home Chana is the one who drove him in the charioteer so he felt like he had a very familiar kind of relationship even after the Buddha became enlightened, it was the Buddha so he never practiced although Chana became a monk he was just kind of coasting on you know his friendship with the Buddha. And so he never really did much of anything you know, in his, in his uh, time as a monk. So just at the time of the Buddha's death, you know, one of his last instructions to the Sangha was that nobody should even speak to Chana. You know, just imagine how it would be if one of the last, the last instructions of the Buddha to the Sangha you know, don't even speak to this guy. And the Buddha passed away. <laughs> well, Chana was very upset by all this. He practiced hard and got enlightened. <laughs> See, all these Buddhist stories have happy endings. <laughs> but it just struck me in terms of the range of, it's like, whatever's needed. You know, we all are stuck in our own particular ways and the Buddha, out of this development of great compassion and great wisdom understood okay what's needed you know for each particular person to be free it's like the buddha saw into deeply into the nature of things and he wanted everyone else to see into the nature of things into the truth of emptiness the possibility of awakening from the dream of ignorance of delusion That we live so much of the time in. The Buddha awakened and he wanted everyone to awaken. All 45 years of his teaching, of the whole range of skillful means that the Buddha used, is condensed in one verse from the Dhammapada, where it says, Refrain from unskillful, unwholesome actions. Do good ones. Purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. Refrain from unskillful actions. Perform or do good actions. Purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. Now this last line is interesting because it points to the timeless nature of the Dharma. There are an endless number of Buddhas in the past and said to be Buddhas coming in the future. The Dharma is is timeless, the truth is timeless, it doesn't change. The causes of suffering and the possibility of happiness remains the same. And that's the great power and beauty of the teachings, its timeless quality. But out of compassion, the Buddha didn't simply say, avoid unwholesome, do good, purify the mind. In case we had any doubt at all about what these actions were, he told us, okay, these are the ten unwholesome actions. Don't do them. Okay, so this is what I'd like to talk about tonight. There are three unwholesome actions of the body. There are four unwholesome actions of speech and three of the mind. These are the actions that do harm to ourselves. They do harm to others. They are actually deleterious to our happiness, to our well-being, to our welfare. That's the motive for pointing them out. the first of the unwholesome actions of the body is to refrain from killing not to kill other living beings not harming others physically not people going around killing other people not people killing animals out of sport or out of livelihood just imagine what this planet would be like even if it was just people not killing people. I was, you know, to us it seems so obvious, and yet how much killing is going on in the world, and how much suffering comes from that? Not killing other living things because we don't like them, you know, or because they're not pleasant. In the act of killing, there's always a feeling of separation, of contraction, of alienation in ourselves, as well as the obvious suffering for the being killed, who's killed. But it's not always easy, you know, we live in this world, sometimes we're faced with very difficult situations. Termites are eating up one's house be happy, be happy. Hard. <laughs> right, what do we do? You know, is, do we just turn over the house or do we take some action? It's not always easy, you know. And sometimes we may, through circumstances, feel that it's the appropriate thing to do in that circumstance to take life. But I think we need to stay very, very conscious you know, of what we're doing and really explore all the other possibilities first. That we don't do it lightly. Because in our culture we do do it lightly. You you go in the supermarkets, there are shelves of sprays and cans and traps and this and that to zap the beings we don't like. Just to explore other possibilities. It's amazing the force of delusion in the mind. I have a sad sad personal delusion story. <laughs> <laughs> Years ago when I finished college I, was, I was, went into the Peace Corps and I went to Thailand which is where I first uh, became involved in Buddhism. But in Peace Corps training surprisingly for going to Bangkok uh, Thailand, we did our training in DeKalb, Illinois in the middle of winter. <laughs> which is kind of like this. But anyway, at the last, the final two weeks, they brought us to Hawaii. And on the big island, the Waipio Valley, beautiful, beautiful place. And part of the training in Waipio Valley in Hawaii was to kill chickens. Now, I don't know what they thought we would be doing in (laughs) Thailand, in the Peace Corps. But I remember very clearly the kind of mindset I had about this. I and mean, i felt a little uncomfortable but i also had this kind of macho sense well i'm a man and i should be able to do this you know and there was there was that in me and i just so this this other volunteer is kind of holding this chicken i'm taking this knife you know and even though it was really a very kind of didn't like doing it i remember afterwards i have the, i had this picture of me you know, holding this scrawny chicken with this huge grin on my face you know. look look what I did well years later when I was practicing in India I went through the Peace Corps and never had to kill a chicken and <laughs> finished the Peace Corps go to India doing my practice and at some point all of this starts coming up you know, in my sitting and it was, it was really horrendous for me you know, because I was reliving consciously then, free of delusion, actually what I had done. You know, it was really just an act of murder. And it was a terrible, terrible feeling of remorse you know, for that action, but actions once done can't be undone. Well, that's, that's why it's so important to take care with our actions. And just one little PS to this story, which is very strange this is the only time this has ever happened in my life the day that all of this was coming up in my practice at this little monastery I was staying at they sometimes would serve uh, eggs and chapati in the evening so they served this sort of like soft boiled egg cracked open the egg and there was an embryo of a little chicken in (laughs) it I couldn't believe it (laughs) is the universe telling me something At the time of the Peace Corps, and this is also surprising, that we can grow up in, in a culture and somehow not have an understanding of what it means, of the precept not to kill. You know, of course, it's there in the Ten Commandments and all that, but it had not been internalized. So this is the first of the unwholesome actions. We need to really understand that it's not a skillful thing to do. But lest one gives up hope if one has actually committed such a dastardly deed, there's another story from the Buddhist time which kind of gives one's encouragement. I won't go through all the details, but it turns out that this guy, through a whole set of circumstances, just started going around killing people. His name was Angulimala. And they're very fierce and ferocious. And one day he's going after the Buddha to kill the Buddha. But the Buddha, through his psychic powers, no matter how fast Ngulimala ran after him, the Buddha was just walking very slowly, and Ngulimala couldn't catch up. And so finally Angulimala shouts in frustration, Stop! You know, and the Buddha turns to him and says, Ngulimala, I have stopped. It's you who have not stopped. I've stopped harming other beings. I've stopped the wandering of my mind. Sengulimala was so impressed by the fearlessness of the Buddha and the peace. He renounced his ways, he became a monk, and he too became fully enlightened. <laughs> so I like that story because it just <laughs> illustrates there's hope for us all. Can you hear me okay? Okay, I'll try projecting. Not killing. That's the first of the unskillful actions the Buddha was talking about. The second of the unskillful actions is not stealing. Not taking that which is not freely offered. And it's really interesting on retreat because there is a very heightened sensitivity to this precept, and it comes about in different ways. Remember once I was on retreat, sharing a room with somebody, sharing a room with an old friend. I just noticed that this friend had some kind of—I don't know—those shaving cream or after shave lotion or whatever. Hmm, that looks like it would be nice. And so I just—he wasn't—he wasn't around, and so I just kind of took some... I knew it would be okay with him. But after I took it, even though it was a small, it was really a small little thing that I knew he wouldn't mind, it didn't feel right. You know, in the, in the stillness and the calm of the retreat and my sensitivity to my own motives and what I was doing, it was taking what was not offered. And so it really just heightened that sensibility a lot. Can we be impeccable with this? there's another IMS story which actually combines a few unwholesome actions. (laughs) I don't know whether most of you are aware but off the kitchen there's the big walk-in refrigerator where a lot of the food is stored. This happened quite a few years ago. and In the evening, a staff person went in to this walk-in refrigerator to get something and they saw a yogi in there with his hand in the box of figs. And the staff person very politely said, can I help you? And this yogi said, oh, I'm looking for the maintenance department. So sometimes we do things very explicitly. Sometimes we do things in a cloud of delusion or (laughs) rationalizing behavior and not wanting to look at it in a clear way. (laughs) It was a good line. It was (laughs) quick thinking of sorts. (laughs) But it's really the refinement of this precept, you know, the refraining from this unskillful action, not taking that which is not freely offered, that creates a tremendous feeling of trust, of safety, you know, in any community. So it's it's tremendously powerful. It's worth really looking with a very refined perception at our actions in this regard. and, and practicing an impeccability because it gives a tremendous not only inner strength to ourselves but it's a great gift of trust to everyone else so the first of the unskillful actions is killing the second is stealing the third of the unskillful actions which the Buddha talked of is sexual misconduct now this means different things according to the concept context For those of us who are lay people in the world and involved in relationships, in intimate relationships, it means not getting involved in sexual activities, sexual relations, which cause harm to ourselves or others. Generally described as adultery or getting involved where there's dishonesty, there's deception. For those of us on retreat, you know, it really means, or those who've ordained as monks or nuns, it means refraining from sexual activity altogether. What's worth exploring about all this is the very nature of sexual desire. It's extremely strong, as we all know. This is a very powerful force in our lives, and it drives very many actions. Now very often when we're filled with the passion of sexual desire for many people it's time when we feel most alive you know and most energized it can be a wonderful feeling when it's properly channeled but it can also be very powerful in the wrong direction <laughs> one of the uh, a Burmese teacher, Zupandita, he had a very funny and monk like and true statement about this. He said, lust cracks the brain. <laughs> 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 and it does. So it's not that in the context of our of our everyday lives we should necessarily be abstaining because you know as lay people it can be completely appropriate but how are we using it are we using it in a skillful way or in a harmful way the buddha said to take care with this because it has consequences on retreat we can learn a lot about the force and the nature of desire in the context of refraining from acting on it. Because it's possible, as this sexual energy starts to get strong, or gets strong at times, we can find that place in our awareness where we're neither suppressing it nor acting on it. But just allowing ourselves to feel the quality of the energy and we learn something extremely important. And that is that it, like everything else, is impermanent. That it comes, it can be felt strongly, and by itself it will leave. This really changes our understanding or relationship to this very powerful desire. Because normally we think this desire comes and the only options we have are either to suppress it or act on it. But in the context of a retreat, we see another whole possibility. We neither have to suppress it, nor are we compelled to act on it. We can let it come up, feel it, wash through, and it's gone for then. There's another interesting thing to learn about this, and this unfolds a lot as the practice deepens. As we begin to see this mind-body, not as being some solid, fixed entity, but actually as a field of energy. And one of the experiences that is common in practice is that we see that it's the same energy running through, but it's felt in different ways. It has different flavors depending upon what part of the body we're focusing our attention. It's not a different energy. It's the same thing that's circulating throughout. If the attention is focused in the genitals, there will be a sexual flavor. It'll be that force of sexuality and desire. If we raise our attention following this flow of energy and we feel it in the heart, the flavor of that is going to be entirely different. We feel it up here. It's going to be very different. And I just found it very interesting to see that it's all the same it's all part of the same flow and it's really where we're focusing our attention that imparts the particular flavor to it. So all this is by way of suggesting an investigation. You know, the problem is that with sexual energy it's so pleasurable that the mind gets It gets hooked, it gets caught in it, and it stays there because of the pleasure. Just experiment sometime with moving your attention up, moving it down, into the feet, into the legs. See what happens to the quality of your experience. These are the three unwholesome actions of body. Killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. It doesn't mean sexual expression. It means sexual activity that causes harm. Now the next four unwholesome actions are important to talk about because they're in an arena that we normally don't even pay attention to very much in our lives. And it all has to do with speech. There are four unwholesome actions of speech. The energy of speech is very powerful in our lives. Much more than we realize. And of course being on retreat is such a relief, really just the silence, but as you know in the world, a good part of every day is spent in talking, in verbal communication how often do we really pay attention to the quality of our speech? Well, the Buddha pointed out some things to pay attention to. It's one aspect of the Eightfold Path, which is the Buddha's description of the path to awakening, the path to liberation. He singled it out of all the possible things to mention right speech is an aspect of the path to liberation but usually we relegate it to some unimportant place um, It's really sitting that's important, or walking, or retreat. Or- and so we pass over something that's crucial in our lives. Just reflect for a moment on something we all know of, the effect of speech on our relationships. it has a powerful effect okay so the first of the unskillful actions of speech is false speech is telling lies there are many gradations to lying and it's really helpful to look at our motivations what are the motivations behind those times when we're saying something that isn't true sometimes it's a blatant lie Sometimes it's maybe just an exaggeration. There are little ones, there are big ones. There was one yogi at the end of a three-month retreat. You know, we have this time of talking for a few days. kind of. We call it integration week. Some people call it disintegration week. <laughs> <laughs> and in one of the groups he said that one of the things he noticed about his speech, because often his yogis do, you know, oh, how long did you usually sit for, you know, and how long did you sit for? And he noticed that in that kind of conversation, he always ate at 15 minutes. (laughs) I mean, it's not like that's a huge untruth, but it's interesting, why? You know, what's what's the motive? What's going on that would take us away from being with the simplicity of what's true. Now sometimes we tell what's untrue out of greed. We just want something and we think that this is going to get it for us. Sometimes we do it because we have some notion of protecting ourselves. You know, maybe we don't want somebody to know something or people won't like us. You know, if if we say something Sometimes we don't tell the truth under the misguided perception that we're protecting others. You know, well, I don't want to hurt them, you know, in some way. Now, telling the truth, the commitment to truth, does not mean that we just spill out everything that's in our minds. The Buddha gave a very useful guideline for speech. He said, say that which is true and that which is useful. And if it's true and not useful, he would remain silent. So it takes a lot of sensitivity. Is this the right time? It's the appropriate way. <coughs> I'm amazed in myself how difficult it is to be completely truthful over little things. You know, that's not just the habit of mind either of exaggeration or just shading things a little bit for one reason or another and so it's a it's a wonderful practice just okay just say what's true there's a very inspiring book that came out quite a few years ago called Life and Death in Shanghai I don't know whether you came across it it was about a woman who was imprisoned in China during the Cultural Revolution. And she had come from quite a, a well-off family. Her husband, I think, had worked in one of the international companies in Shanghai. She was imprisoned and tortured. Because they were trying to get her to say something about uh, Chow and Lai, you know, to incriminate him. And she refused to say that which wasn't true. In the face of years of imprisonment and torture, her commitment to the truth was so strong that she was willing to endure that. And finally, after years, they released her. And on the way out, they were again pressing, you know, we want you to say this about him. And if you don't, we're going to bring you back to prison. And even in the face of that threat, she wouldn't say it. And finally, she was let out of prison and, and she ended up living in America. But it was so inspiring to me to see the possibility of that kind of commitment to the truth. Now, in the very great and vast vision That the Buddha has of this universe of many lifetimes and many planes of existence, and that there are some values which are greater than life itself. And we may not all be at that point, you know, and I think it's helpful to recognize where we are, but in our own small way, not in the face of such dire threat or circumstance. can we arouse that commitment? <coughs> now in the previous life stories of the Buddha, they're called the Jataka tales, where he talks about his many past lives. In the stories, and as he said, as he described it, he did many of these unwholesome actions you know, in the course of his evolution. But the one thing that he never did in the course of his evolution towards Buddhahood, once he had established himself on the Bodhisattva path, he said that he never knowingly said that which is untrue. So I feel it's a tremendously rigorous and demanding practice. But it helps to awaken us. So that's the first of the unwholesome actions of speech. The second is angry or harsh or aggressive speech. You know, what's the tone? What's the energy with which we say things? Speech is impactful. Now, how do we feel when somebody's speaking very harshly or angrily or aggressively at it? It's like being attacked. It's like being struck. The Buddha said karmically use of, use of this angry, harsh speech is the cause of loss of beauty. And actually can see it because in that moment there is no beauty. The third kind of unwholesome speech is one of our favorites and that's gossip. <laughs> you know, and backbiting gossip causing disharmony causes loss of friends. So what interests me in this, why does it seem so enjoyable? (laughs) It's like, this is a very common, people get together, and often what do they talk about? About somebody else. It's not always malicious, but it's often simply gossip, gossiping about other people. What is the pleasure of that? It would be helpful to look, You know, actually in the times of doing it, because I think that what happens is, in some way, it reaffirms a sense of self. You know, we feel somehow stronger or better or something. It strengthens this sense of self. But that's not such a good idea. What would happen if you actually made an experiment and refrained from talking about other people. That would be interesting to do. I did that for a while and ninety percent of my speech was eliminated. (laughs) And it was very interesting to say, but there was a, a very important consequence of it and that is my mind got a lot less judgmental because I was not feeding the judgments in this kind of speech. Okay, enough of that <laughs> it's easy to go on and on about all this because these are, these are activities that are so familiar you know, and so common and that's why it's helpful I feel it's helpful that the Buddha really out of compassion he, just, he laid it all out he said listen these kinds of actions these activities are not conducive to happiness they're conducive to suffering and so it kind of wakes us up out of our habituated activity So we look a little more carefully at the very things that we're doing in our lives. because There's there's false speech, just saying that which isn't true. There's harsh or angry speech. There's backbiting or gossip. And the last category of unwholesome speech, which also covers a lot of ground, the Buddha called it useless talk. (laughs) And I love watching for this because I can see myself sitting you know, with a group of friends or in the staff dining room or something, and conversation is going on, and I can see something arise in my mind, and if I'm not mindful, before I know it, whatever little passing thought, in the mind, out the mouth. <laughs> and much of the time, it is completely useless. It doesn't serve any purpose at all. And those times when I am mindful, of this thought arising in the mind, and say, yeah, I don't have to say that. There's an amazing feeling just of repose. the, The attention, the mind, the awareness has settled back again. It's not being driven by that kind of useless speech. It's very much part of our practice in terms of calming the mind, stilling the mind, living in peace rather than living in agitation. I hope you get a sense from this of what a major piece of spiritual practice, attention to speech is. This is a major part of our lives. It's not insignificant. Out of the ten unwholesome actions, four of them have to do with speech. So it's really worth incorporating this understanding into our understanding of what spiritual practice is about really worthy of our attention of our care the last three of the unwholesome actions are actions of mind and the first of these is covetousness just the mind it wants whatever it sees it wants and it wants it even more if other people have it (laughs) it's just the greedy mind I want this, I want this, I want that in the Buddhist cosmology, this is kind of known as Hungry Ghost Consciousness. You know, because the Hungry Ghost Realm is just beings filled with desire that can never be fulfilled. So the, the, the iconographic image is of a being with a huge body and a pinhole mouth. So no matter how much is taken in, there's never a feeling of satiation. Well, that's an iconographic image for a mind state of covetousness. Always wanting more, never feeling contentment. Never feeling mudita. That is the happiness in the good fortune or prosperity of others. The image I like to use to describe this, which is so striking to me, of the suffering of this action of mind, of covetousness, is... In watching TV, you know, in the endless advertisements, commercials, what would it feel like if you wanted everything that was advertised? (laughs) And it would be a hell realm. Oh, I want that, I want that, I want that. Because it's an endless, an endless presentation. But fortunately, at least with respect to television, we've learned pretty much to tune it out. You know, we can mute it we don't do that so well necessarily with all the stuff arising in our minds or in the world outside that's just another area to pay attention to the second of the unwholesome actions of mind and this I want to go into just a little bit of detail because it has some very interesting ramifications and that is the unwholesome mind state of ill will aversion, irritation, fear, sorrow, grief. All of these mind states have aversion contained within them. When we don't get what we want, we feel aversion, we feel ill will. When we do get what we don't want, we feel ill will. Notice the different situations when ill will or aversion arises. Maybe it's with pain in the body. We don't like it. Something comes we don't like. And so we feel aversion to it. Or unpleasant difficult emotions or mind states. They arise. We don't like it. We feel aversion. We can feel ill will or aversion about past situations that come to mind. You're sitting here quietly. Nobody's bothering you. Start thinking of something that's happened in the past and get all upset about it. Or, even more striking, we can sit here, nobody bothering us, and imagine things that might happen <laughs> <laughs> and get angry and get upset. I can't remember whether I mentioned in the whole or not uh, the Painted Tiger story, but oh, it's, a good, it's a good story anyway. <laughs> but it's very much about this there was this monk this was his end story so I guess he was a Japanese monk Chinese he was a great artist he lived in a cave all by himself and he spent his time painting a tiger a picture of a tiger on the wall of his cave and he was a very great artist and he took a lot of care with it spent years painting this tiger when he finished he looked at it and got frightened (laughs) well we do the same thing We paint with the brushwork of our imagination all kinds of scenarios on the wall of our cave. We look at them and we get frightened, we get angry, we get sorrowful, we get rage, enraged, whatever. Forgetting that this is just a painted tiger. It's just a thought arising in the mind, that's all it is. Notice the contraction. Notice the suffering when we're identified with this state of ill will. When we get caught up in it. When we're identified. When we're lost in it. It's a state of contraction. It's a state of suffering for us. Now questions come up about grief and sorrow. And this is a very delicate very delicate question and needs a lot of care for understanding sorrow or grief arises in us from the loss of something the loss of a person loss of a situation loss of a possession it's out of loss that sorrow or grief come a loss is really another word for change In every moment of change, loss is happening. So the question is, how are we relating to the experience of loss? Because this is part of our lives. It's happening all the time. How do we relate to this feeling of loss? Is there aversion to it? Is there attachment to what was lost? Notice where the grief or sorrow come from. And explore the possibility of being open to the feeling of loss, of being in that, being in that feeling, without necessarily going into sorrow or grief about it. The Buddha himself was very aware of loss. There's there's quite a beautiful. Story of when his chief disciple died, Saraputa was said to be second only to the Buddha in wisdom and understanding. Saraputa was older than the Buddha. And so Saraputta died, and the Buddha said, It's as if the light of the sun and the moon have left the sky. You know, so he was keenly aware of the loss. But there was no entry into sorrow and grief, because there was no attachment. So our own practice, I think, is opening to the possibility of new levels of understanding. Because what might seem impossible, or even unnatural, at certain levels, well, how could you not feel grief? How can you not feel sorrow at certain losses? And at a certain level of understanding, those feelings are going to come. But just to stay open to the possibility that at another level of understanding, it may not be like that. tell you two, two little death stories. One was of uh, His Holiness Karmapa, who is was one of the the head of one of the Tibetan lineages, and a great, great being. When he was dying and everybody was fretting about him, you know, that he was dying, as I heard the story, he said, don't worry, nothing happens. (laughs) You know, from his perspective, nothing happens. the the continuity of awareness is there and it's just like, and I've heard this described with other beings as well, you know, it's just like changing clothes. It's all how we see things, it's all our level of understanding which will condition how we feel. Just one of our teachers in Tibet, Tibetan teacher uh, living in Nepal, we just heard this morning, uh, he died and we knew that he'd been very sick and it had a heart condition, so it was really just a question of when. Uh, so we, we heard the news of this. And then they also told a little story. A Western doctor was with him at the time of his death. And just, you know, finally the heart just stopped beating. And a lot of lamas came in and they started doing the various prayers, which, whatever they are. And at a certain point in the prayers, this teacher, this is hard to believe, but sat up and sounded out three long Tibetan syllables, ah, and then remained in sitting position. And the story from the people who were there said that this happened exactly at the place in the prayers where the ahs are supposed to happen. (laughs) Who knows what's going on? (laughs) You know, from one level of perception, you know, a dear and great being has died. From another level of perception, nothing's happened. And so I say this just to open up the possibility or the interest, the willingness to look at the various mind states, the various emotions that come see what their roots are now are they rooted in attachment, are they rooted in aversion is it possible to let go this is from the very beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, that is the discourse the Buddha gave on the foundations of mindfulness He said, this is the way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for realizing the noble path, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. This very practice of awareness that we're doing. This is the way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for realizing the noble path. This is what's being accomplished through our practice. It is possible. And at the same time, we need to realize that we're not completely there. That there is attachment and that there is aversion and that sorrow will arise and grief will arise, and it's not a question of judging or thinking, oh, this shouldn't be here. It's to learn how to work skillfully with these. And kind of the poignancy of our current level of understanding was expressed very beautifully by Japanese poet Issa. And it was at the death, this was a a little haiku that he wrote at the death of one of his children. I think it was a thirteen-year-old daughter. He said, this dewdrop world is indeed a dewdrop world. And yet, and yet. You know, it's really a beautiful expression of where we are, I think, in the understanding, yes, it is the nature of things the transience, the, the impermanence and yet here we are with the feelings that we have. I feel it's just helpful to put it all in the biggest possible context of understanding, of possibility. Because then we don't stay caught or identified in our conditioning, but we actually use what's ever arising in the service of liberation, in the service of awakening. The, the last, the tenth of the unwholesome actions, these three of mind, are covetousness, of ill will or aversion, and all its manifestations. And the last of the unwholesome actions of mind is wrong view. Now, this is particularly uh, crucial to understand. Because as long as wrong view is present in our minds, there's a basic misdirection in our lives. So what does wrong view mean? It has many aspects, but one of the, one of the essential meanings is not understanding that actions have consequences, not understanding the law of karma, thinking that what we do has no result, it doesn't matter. That's That, according to the Buddhist teaching, is actually a very dangerous belief, because then we don't have motivation to take care with our actions and do many misguided things. We're misdirected in ours, there's nothing which is illuminating our unfolding. So understanding and exploring, investigating, it's not a question of belief it's really a question of investigating for ourselves what is this teaching about cause and effect that actions bring results that unwholesome actions bring suffering and wholesome actions bring happiness we need to explore this to make this an active part of our inquiry When wrong view is present, we don't stop to consider where our actions are leading. Each of our actions is leading someplace. Well, is it going someplace that we want to end up? We need to consider this. You know, where is this action leading? Do I want to go there? And the other aspect of wrong view, which I talk much more about on Thursday is the deeply conditioned sense of I, of self, this belief in self. This is the basic illusion of our lives. So on a relative level, we understand ourselves as individual beings, relating to each other as individuals, and on a more absolute level, We see that the very notion of self is an illusion. We see through the solidity of separation. We see that on a more fundamental level that is not true. So these are the ten unwholesome actions that the Buddha pointed out to us out of great compassion not killing, not stealing, not engaging in sexual conduct that causes harm, not lying, not using harsh speech, not using angry speech, not gossiping, backbiting, not speaking frivolously, refraining from covetousness, from ill will, from wrong view. He pointed this out to us to help us incorporate this understanding into our spiritual practice this is what we need to look at in our lives freedom is really not about doing whatever we want when we want it that's addiction Freedom comes from having the spaciousness of awareness to see clearly so that we can actually make the effort to make wise choices. What is it that leads to happiness for ourselves and others? What is it that leads to suffering? This is a much deeper and more mature understanding of freedom. There's one little Dalai Lama story I'll end with. He said he came he comes from a part of Tibet where people are quite rough. Um yeah, and he said they were naturally short-tempered. But over the years he's trained himself. You know, now when anger or disturbances arise in the mind, they're there just for a few moments. And the mind is calm again. And he said that even though he's a very lazy practitioner because <laughs> he doesn't seem to have much time still he seems to have made much progress in this. So I thought it was a very nice reminder to us you know, that we actually can work on all this. This is one teaching of the great Tibetan, Indian saint actually, uh, Padmasambhava, who brought Buddhism to Tibet. There's one core essence teaching. He said, though my vision is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of karma, my attention to action and its result is as fine as a grain of barley flour have yeah, fine. though my vision, though my understanding of emptiness is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of cause and effect, my attention to action, is as fine as a grain of cauliflower. Or can we incorporate both of these elements into our lives? Let's sit for a few minutes.